0: So before, um, uh, without wasting much time, let me take the moment to introduce our very important guest today. I'd really like to welcome Julie Sago, who's a freelance journalist, columnist at Age. She's authored two, Scanlon Foundation, and uh, co-authored one, um, uh, you know, book with Scanlon Foundation. So very welcome to you, Julie. We also have Jen Young-Lo, who's a director uh, at Australia National University based in Melbourne for the Asian Australian chapter leadership chapter. He's a regular um, in the Australian-Chinese uh, international relations arena, freelancing and writing fabulous articles on how these relations uh, can be more prosperous Uh, from a very optimistic way. So very welcome to both of you and over to you Jen Yang.
1: Thank you Akeshkara for that uh, very generous and wonderful welcome and uh, before I begin I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I am zooming in um, at the moment, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin nation and pay my respects to elders past, present, emerging and future. It is a real honour to be here today, and I wanted to uh, thank, uh, you know, the Walkley Foundation, the Scanlon Foundation, uh, the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute, and Media Diversity Australia for this opportunity to share this platform with uh, with Julie, with Julie Saigo, um, who uh, I have known for a while in terms of reading her fabulous works and analysis on a range of issues, but we really did manage to come cross paths until this uh, very emotional and very important initiative funded by the Scanlon Foundation. And ever since that interview Julie and I had, we have actually remained in close contact and, uh, and is somebody that I'm proud to call as my friend. And I'm really honored to be sharing this platform with Julie um, so, before we engage in this in conversation, I do, I do wanted to provide some, um, a, a summary and an overview of the assignment that Julie undertook on behalf of the Scanlon Foundation and where she and I crossed paths. So I will hand over to you, Julie, to provide us with a bit of a summary about the assignment and um, uh, then we can sort of have that conversation around our shared experiences and insights based on that. Over to you, Julie.
2: Indeed, um, and you're a natural anchor, Jayung. You're natural in the cheek.
1: You kind.
2: Yeah. Um, look, the, the sentiments you expressed are mutual, and uh, in the course of, of our discussion, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to revisiting that interview that we had. Um, but indeed, I reached out to you last year as I embarked on my research for a narrative that uh, was called uh, Melbourne's Melbourne's New East, and it was focused on the Chinese community, and in particular, the Chinese community in Box Hill, the Box Hill suburb of Melbourne and its surrounds. And the reason why we were looking at at, at that particular area is because it is one of the areas in Australia that has the highest concentration of Chinese Australians. So people who I think there, there was uh, there's about 40% of residents in, in the area of Box Hill who identify as having Chinese ancestry.
0: Yeah. Hmm.
2: There's about 25% who were actually born in China. And I, uh, I think that in that group, about half of them came to Australia within the last decade. Um, so by kind of identifying this particular geographic region, we were able to sort of, in a very kind of concrete way, explore how the Chinese Australian community is faring. You know how how is integration going? Um, how did that and how did that community develop as well? How does kind of multiculturalism work on the ground in a sense? Um, and I reached out. I reached out to you. And I think the the key factor here is that, and this seems to happen whenever I take on um, research assignments for Scanlon, that as I started my research, events on the ground started happening very quickly. So I think I think um, I, rem- I remember that uh, COVID was just starting um, as I was, I was as I was starting to think about Box Hill. Um, I, I think there was some discussion about whether I even go to the suburb, and I said, "Oh, you know, I'm not scared. Of course, I'm going to go to Box Hill." <laughs> you know? um, so we were we were really kind of in the very sort of early stages, not understanding really what was happening. Um, and then very swiftly, the borders closed. Um, Australia's relationship with China grew even more frosty uh, than it was, and obviously. Uh, the chinese community was confronting a kind of upswing in in anti anti chinese sentiment and it was generally just an un, an uncomfortable and very quite febrile time and that's when that's when i i approached you and i approached you about about as as, as a kind of interviewee for my piece and i also asked you who else i should speak to and so on and you gave me some advice very early on and you told me to make sure that in the narrative, that the narrative would reflect the diversity of the Chinese community in Australia. Now, do you remember saying that to me? And do you remember why you gave me that piece of very valuable advice?
1: <laughs> oh, Julie, I mean, I, um, interestingly that you mentioned that because uh, before today's, uh, in conversation, um, I went back to my old, uh, I went back to my through my old emails and went through, uh, you know, the the our email records and the conversation you and I had. And uh, similar to you, uh, I felt that, you know, the interview was a while ago. And in fact, it was, I, I was looking at the dates and it was literally like 12 months ago, you know, it was like 4th or 5th of August. Um, and I remember receiving your email, you know, you uh, And I I was amazed because, as I mentioned before in my introduction, I've known about you, I've read your work um, during your time with The Age and Fairfax Media. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was really excited receiving that email from you and I thought it was just potentially another conversation with a journalist about, you know, the current issues facing China, Australia and the Australian China and the Chinese Australian community. So I looked at it, I read it in depth, and then I realised it was for a much more insightful longer piece um, looking at a specific community in a specific suburb within Melbourne and that really got my attention because and and my immediate reaction to that was I need to tell Julie or I need to inform and advise Julie that if there is the opportunity to do so in a much more longer lengthier piece to reflect and hone into the diversity within the Chinese Australian community and the reason I gave that advice to you during our engagement and conversation was I was not seeing any of that, or a lot of it, within uh, media coverage um, and commentary and analysis about the Chinese Australian community beforehand. As you mentioned before, uh, as the Australia-China relationship got quite frosty, most prominently during 2017, when an ABC Four Corners program first aired, talking about political foreign interference and influence, um, around uh, China's role in that particular aspect, uh, there was a huge sense of anxiety and fear within the Chinese Australian community about what does this mean for us? And some people were saying, what does this mean for us? Some other community elders were saying, oh, here we go again, you know, the, the anti-China sentiment, the xenophobia, the sinophobia. you know, feelings that we've experienced Uh you know throughout our time in australia over 200 years and i always share the story with people that you know one of the main drivers of australian federation in 1901 back in 1901 was the uh was the yellow peril was the fear of asian migration specifically from china uh, and this is when you know, colonies were introducing anti-Chinese legislation to uh, you know suppress and to discourage Chinese migration in Australia. And it's because of these historical feelings and historical incidences that causes the community a lot of angst every time they read about themselves within the media. And when we had our conversation, I just thought to myself, this might be a really good opportunity to highlight not only a specific suburb, but also that diversity of the Chinese Australian community. And I was very glad that, very pleased and honoured and, and you know, relieved that you accepted that advice and you sort of took that with you as you were developing this, this narrative and this piece for the Scanlon Foundation. And, uh, and I couldn't thank you enough for that because we weren't seeing it in the media at all.
2: Yeah, and I mean, you'd think that it would be an obvious point, but in fact, it's uh, because we were seeing uh, Chinese Australians through through such a politicized lens at that time. Um, it really, it really helped me to have someone to you know to have someone remind me that hang on a minute, you know, this community has been here, you know, since mm-hmm. the gold rushes, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and and there are so many kind of different uh, waves of migration that. That encompass that Chinese Australian experience. Um, it was very valuable advice, and in fact, I so I went off and I was able to very consciously gather voices that uh, that in various ways spoke to different um, different periods of migration and different perspectives. So, for instance, uh, I. There was a a woman who I interviewed who had even come to Australia in the 1960s. Yeah. Um, She was from mainland China, but she came via Hong Kong. Uh, I spoke to uh, some some people from the Tiananmen Square generation and one in particular who who we can turn to, we can return to that, to him um, and his fascinating story in a minute. Um, And then... the the people who came in the huge migrant surge from China uh, in in this century. So people who came as international students, um, later as business migrants, as the investor class as well. So I was was very conscious of that. And within that, of course, it just made a difference to ensure that I had diversity of ages. So... Uh, older Chinese has have a very different perspective to younger, um, and uh, a, a, as do men from women. I mean, one of the kind of fascinating things that I discovered, and again, I mean, this is just journalism 101, but to just ask the open question, uh, why did you come here? Why did you come to Australia? I mean, yes, I know technically you came as an international student or you came as a business migrant, but why really? You know, what was going on in your life to make you come? And I, uh, I found out that a number, a number of kind of young uh, Chinese Chinese women were telling me, well, Australia represents freedom. To us, it kind of represents freedom, freedom from some of the social pressures back in China. The family, you know, always on my back to get married, have kids, that kind of thing. Um, whereas, you know, I can have a, a sort of more, a, a sort of more expansive kind of um, way of being here in Australia. Um, and then it turns out that in fact we um, we have a very marked gender. Uh, gender imbalance in, in 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 the more recent in more recent years in terms of the Chinese coming in, you know, 55% female yeah. and uh, and and to 45-44% male. So it's uh, you know, then you then you kind of realize that you've hit on some sort of trend of sorts, you know, possibly. Um, so it was, as I say, very valuable advice. Um, and you, in that process, um, young you kind of uh, acted as a as a fixer, even at some point, point. Um, and you introduced me to uh, to Long Song, hmm.
0: yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, and so he uh, he came. As part of the Tiananmen Square generation, so these were the migrants who came, who sought asylum, and their relatives who came later um, after the the crackdown on the student protests in 1989. Um, and he was he was part of that generation, and he started a he started. Chinese language schools in Melbourne. So I think he runs what is still the largest network of Chinese language schools.
0: Yeah. Right.
2: Um, and, and so we had a kind of a, I, I interviewed him with your help, you know, interpreting and, and encouraging. And he told us some very interesting things as well, didn't he? He told us um, a story about going into a meeting with a primary school teacher, in primary school principal, I think it was in Glen Waverley, he was uh, wanting to set up after school Chinese classes for the kids and the principal said to him, okay, but can I get you to put, to put on some classes for the parents as well? And he said, yeah, sure. You want, you want me to, to teach the parents English? You know, we can do that. And the principal said, no, I want you to teach, teach the parents how to be part of Australian society or how to develop a kind of Australian mentality and you know let their kids do after school activities and and you know kind of lay off a little bit on their on the pressure for them to to do uh, to do more in their studies so he 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 was he was quite he was quite open um, i think you afterwards shared some observations with me about that interview that surprised you do you want to talk about that
1: Oh, it really did, Julie. I I remember that uh, conversation with Principal Son, and Principal Son is somebody who I've known for a long time. Uh, you know, he was a, a very important stakeholder for me during my time as a councillor with the City of Monash because um, a large number of his, uh, a large number of the community and also the parents that that you know take their kids through his Chinese school uh, lives in the in the City of Monash and. He has a very strong base within box hill as well as parts of um, you know melbourne's east and so i've known him for a long time and somebody who you know who we would share sort of personal insights with you know in terms of how the community is tracking what some of the sentiments are what's some of the issues facing the community but one of the things that really stood out for me in addition to the points that you mentioned earlier on uh, about uh, that sort of principal teaching telling asking him to you know provide classes to help parents to be more Australian was when he was engaging with you as part of this project he shared about his experiences coming to Australia but also during his time in China during Tiananmen Square during the Tiananmen incident and I've never actually heard that from him before. Like I've known the man for nearly 10 years and, um, you know, he knows uh, my wife. My wife went to school um, when she was going through secondary school. So this is something that he he's never shared with me. And I'm assuming it's something that he doesn't really share often with other Chinese Australian families. And what amazes me was like how you were able to create such a comfortable nuanced and culturally sensitive environment where he was happy to share that with you and um and i think that was a very important piece to the narrative and i remember like you know leaving that interview stunned saying there's something i didn't know about principal son you know like this is when he actually arrived the reasons why he came to australia and his connections back home with china and what motivates him to continue establishing these language schools to support and to promote the chinese language and culture so I um, I was, I left that interview, you know, as you mentioned, as your interpreter and your facilitator, I, I was, um you know, I had two hands on my mouth, on my face saying, wow, you know, like, that was a very sort of uh, insightful discussion between him, you and me, and uh, he shared with you things that he never shared with me before. So um, I, I'm not sure what type of... Uh... <laughs> uh what what type of uh you know uh journalistic magic that you uh you wielded but no it was it was amazing and um I just wanted to, to thank you for that because he he did say to me at the very end you know like oh, this is the most I've ever shared with the journalist um and uh you know he talks to a lot of journalists both here in Australia and in China as well and um you know, he, he, was, he was just very appreciative of of your of the assignment because, again, you know, he had the same perspective as me and that is we read so much about Chinese-Australians in the news, but, you know, we don't often have the opportunity to contribute to a project like this where it was in-depth, it was thorough, and it looked at the community in all those different angles.
2: Um, look, thank you very much for uh, for your flattery there and <laughs> my interview techniques. I mean, of course, I, I, I you know, I will accept every word of it. But oh, yeah, just,
0: later on so
2: <laughs> but let me just um, let me just throw this idea out there was it that i was it cultural sensitivity or in fact was it was it to some extent the opposite so was it doesn't this show the value of sometimes an outsider yep. um asking questions in a you know with a kind of genuineness about them so you know even in a naive sense asking asking the question and i think i asked him Repeatedly, but did you leave because of Tiananmen Square? What was it like afterwards? You know, what was your what was your motivation in leaving? How did you feel when all of that was playing out? Which uh, which perhaps uh, as, uh, if he was being interviewed by, say, a, China, a, a, a journalist who kind of had that sort of cultural sensitivity and knowledge, might you know might be perhaps a little bit more reticent, might see no go zones. That I just didn't see. I just went blundering in. <laughs> oh, no,
1: I think from what I could recall, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. Was you didn't start off with those questions. So you you started off talking about you know the role that he's played within Australia. You know the the, the leadership that he played in setting up those language schools and setting up those programs for Chinese Australian families and for you know uh, Australian families who want to learn Chinese. And I think after those conversations about that particular about his role in the, in those particular initiatives i think you were able to establish quite a strong rapport with him i mean it was it was a long conversation from what i could hear. yeah say. yeah so you didn't start off with those particular questions about where he was from why did he come here i think you eased into it during the conversation and you're absolutely right i think if he was interviewed by let's say a journalist with a chinese australian background he might be a little bit more hesitant to share that in depth because not speak not because the chinese australian journalist doesn't have linguistic knowledge and also the cultural nuance but I think like any multicultural community you know uh, we are probably tend to be more weary about sharing with uh, people of similar backgrounds because you just don't know who they know as well so there is that sort of you know aspect as well but in saying that it it really depends I guess on uh, on the individual in the individual but I think because you didn't start off with those questions, which he's probably so used to in answering from journalists or even from other people that he's come across. Um, I think that that was a real big decisive factor in him wanting to share that story with you. Mm.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think one of the things that uh, that I've learned um, in in reporting and in reporting uh on kind of ethnic communities, um, and especially when when things are politically sensitive is, I guess, never assume that people won't talk to you. Yeah, okay? right. um, uh, Be aware, be aware of the context, uh, but, but kind of, ne- you know, never assume, never assume that people won't open up. I think one of the surprising things that, that I've found in this particular research project was the people who were very prepared to, mm-hmm. to tell me all sorts of uh, personal things about their lives, um, their personal lives, their histories, and so on. Um, as much as as much as I was surprised about the people who I suppose were um, extremely nervous about small details. Yeah, um, and sometimes that can seem quite mysterious. And and a little bit later, I think we'll talk about what's behind some of that nervousness that. I think people will encounter in parts of the Chinese, Australian community. Um, we, We then had an interview of our own yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> i think um in-
1: it, went, it went for a few hours didn't it julie like that's what i recall
2: <laughs> it did and and it was uh it was extremely selfish on my part because no, not at i, all. <laughs> not at I all. think when um when we're when we're doing stories like this we try and we try and find the one person whose brains we can pick in great depth you know uh who we hope will be our kind of guide uh it, through the rest of the project and i sort of had you picked as as it from from the beginning um and again we were talk we were speaking against this very febrile context that was happening um it was during lockdown so we were speaking yeah. over zoom and i i know that i started in, in a particular in a particular sort of way i think um Uh, There's a the great Pulitzer Prize winning journalist John Franklin has got this uh, this piece where he talks about the psychological interview that uh, that he is a great advocate of Um, he was a long form journalist. And essentially it's a little bit like a psychologist taking a case history, you know, <laughs> lie down on the couch and tell me about your childhood. <laughs> um, if
1: only thought- a journalist could do that, Julie. I reckon you, you know, it would be very quite interesting just, to have some of the stories come out. If we all just lie down and just start <laughs> off with that. So.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So um, so in this particular context, um uh we I talked, I I I talked I talked to you about your family history, which I think was. Was really, uh, you you know, a a kind of really spot on in in terms of the kind of themes that arose, even just from that, right? So you had a an ancestor who came to Australia during the gold rushes, yeah, um, and then went back. and went back to China, yeah. Um, Various uh, various of your strands of the family, you know, fought um, at, at. Certain moments for the on the side of the nationalists um, during the Chinese uh, civil war and on the side of the communists. So you couldn't have had a more kind of um, a vantage point that was that was more sort of authoritative mm-hmm. broad, right? Um, your 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 own parents came to Australia in the nineteen seventies. They were uh, refugees, Chinese refugees from Vietnam. Yes. Yeah. And we, we covered a lot of ground, didn't we? So we covered your, your childhood. Um, and I, I remember you telling me, which I thought was just terribly, uh, sort of terribly evocative, but also kind of um, incredibly, um, I don't know, said a lot, about, said a lot about, about your sort of insight and perspective, that your father said to you from a young age, China will rise again. And so you be prepared, you know, you study sort of traditional Chinese poetry, you keep your language and you keep your name, yeah? Um, yeah that's right. And can you remember some of the other themes that we that we talked about?
1: Yeah, I mean, like it's, it, I think I've said this to a few people after our interview that, you know, <laughs> I've had the opportunity to to be interviewed by, you know, a number of journalists and, and media professionals over the years through through you know, about my work and uh, not so much about my personal history. Though. That was probably the most, um, probably the first time that I've sort of shared that much. Again, you know, uh, a nod to your journalistic, you know, like magical abilities there, Julie. So, um, but, you know, I, some of the themes that we touched on, I mean, you, you referred on earlier on about, you know, the story of my ancestor and, um, you know, the the role my, my maternal grandfather played in a number of uh, historical uh Milestones within China at the time, and you know my parents uh, leaving war-torn Vietnam. Um, China, my my sort of ethnic Chinese parents leaving war-torn Vietnam and arriving in Australia in the 1970s, and uh, you know, and my, my sister and I being being born here in, in in Melbourne. And I think you know going through that sort of past history and going through what the experiences that my parents have had and our forefathers and foremothers have had uh, was really emotional. And actually, because, you know, and my dad did say that, you're, you're absolutely right, you know, uh, a quick nod to your memory as well. <laughs> he, he did say that, you know, China will rise again, it will be uh, a superpower again, like it did throughout history, you know, it was the number one civilization in the world. Uh, and, um you know, we, you know, you you need to be prepared for that. So it's important that you keep your heritage, you keep your language skills, keep your name even. So there's a lot of pressure growing up during my childhood to change my name to an English speaking name. And uh, even when I ran for local government elections, the political party I was a part of at the time encouraged me to change my name because they'd said to me, mate, no one's gonna vote for Young Lo when they see your name on the ballot because they would immediately assume you can't speak English. Uh, so there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that sort of like social and personal pressure that I was under growing up, but I'm very grateful to my parents in terms of uh, keeping that sort of like fire within me and keeping that motivation of encouragement to say don't bow down to pressure keep your language keep your culture because a lot of the people that I grew up with uh, Chinese Australian or Asian Australian uh, family friends and people that I went to school with a lot of them went to the opposite so they abandoned their culture they abandoned their heritage and they didn't embrace it until very much later on in their lives and uh, some of them have shared with me they 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 actually regret it they do regret it so Talking to you and being involved in this uh, assignment and this initiative was, was a, I guess you know for me you know a very emotional one. I think you and I shared shared some tears when we talked about this because, you know, we talked about what I what I, what I faced when I was going through school. You know, that sort of overt racism. That um, I think I shared a story with you where uh, during year eleven, when I was you know coming into the the common room, my classmates used to sing the song yellow by Coldplay to me because I was Asian so every time I would walk into the common room they would just sing that song um, and then going into uh, my you know going through university and university wasn't too bad I think because Melbourne University was very culturally diverse so um, in fact you know like most most Asian Australian would actually make fun of me because I didn't do commerce because I didn't do law I studied the Bachelor of Arts and I was proud of that i was proud of doing that but then a lot of my asian friends were like saying oh you're not a real asian you know you're not smart enough to be asian so i had that reverse racism and then coming into my professional career i experienced institutional racism you know the the bamboo ceiling i came face to face with the bamboo ceiling very early in my career i experienced um where you know, like, uh, colleagues would not actually share with me or they wouldn't actually give me that opportunity to, to take on a leadership position. Um, there was one time I went to a local government conference when I was firstly elected as the councillor for the City of Monash back in 2008. I walked into a local government conference in Victoria representing my council and as soon as I walked in, one regional councillor uh, asked me to get her a cup of coffee because she thought I was an employee of that, of that facility rather than a councillor from a, from a different council. So all those experiences and then sort of talking about this in the current climate around...
2: Right. So you know, exactly. So, again, we were, we were talking in the climate not only of kind of uh, COVID but also um, uh, coming, coming in the wake of intense interest um, in Chinese Communist Party influence in Australia um, and, and kind of how that, how that was playing out um, in the Chinese community and, and what, what that was doing uh, to the community, the impact that was having. And I think we, and we talked about uh, one particular experience that you had trying to get a, diver, a, a sort of nuanced point of view into the media. So a, a point of view that kind of wasn't getting a lot of airplay right. and you wanted right. to get that across. Why don't you tell us what happened?
1: Uh, I mean, so, so you, in terms of like the, the the climate that we were in, uh, Julie, you know, you, you pointed out that uh, before in in our conversation, and that was, you know, before COVID nineteen emerged, there was that period where relations between China was very frosty, and we were seeing more analysis and commentary and reporting about China, about Australia, about the bilateral relationship, but also about Chinese Australians. There were certain Chinese Australians that were featured in various media outlets in terms of having their affiliation with Chinese Australian community organisations questioned, having their activities questioned, uh, you know, having their loyalties questioned and their allegiance questioned. And so I felt as a Chinese Australian, I had a moral duty to actually share my own knowledge and share my own experiences, but to provide some nuance and some Dare I say sophistication to the debate because we weren't seeing a lot of it at all. So I wrote an, a couple of opinion pieces, but the one that I wrote about um, the uh, about a number about the you know the the role of Chinese Australians in helping Australia connect better with China um, was not uh, was not. Uh, shown any interest by some of our media publications here so i went i went to every media publication you could name uh and uh pitching the piece talking to editors op editors and uh most of them didn't respond some of them who did uh sort of like sort of, i think dangled the carrot a little bit and said yeah we'll think about it we'll look at it and then they'll never respond to you so out of um not more, not more, not out of frustration but out of like the need to actually put this on uh on the online community and you know publicly you know i went to the south china morning post so i pitched the article to the south china morning post uh, and there was one of a few that i did pitch to them uh, one was about uh you know china taiwan and the role of chinese australian the one was about the role of chinese australians in helping australia bridge that bridge the, those differences between china and australia um was you know they were published on south china morning post and as soon as they were published I received an ensuite, a barrage of emails uh, and messages on Twitter. People, you know, mostly Australians and mostly, unfortunately, Anglo-Australians, you know, labelling me as a traitor, as somebody who's committed treason, as somebody who's betrayed my country, who is a Chinese spy, who is a communist sympathiser, panda hugger, you name it. It was actually that moment that drove me off Twitter. Like I've, I haven't i have been on Twitter ever since. I've deleted my account and my mental health hasn't been better, I must say. But it was a surreal experience because I think I shared with you during our interview that I've been called many things in my life growing up in Australia, being born in Australia. I've been called, you know, the most, um, you know, offensive names possible, you know, like race that had racist connotations, you know, uh, Zipperhead, PowerPoint. I've been called many things because of my race and ethnicity. But the one thing that hurt the most, the one thing that hurt the most was actually not about my race or ethnicity. It's about my allegiance and my loyalty to Australia. This is the only country that I know of. This is the country that I was born in. And this is the country that I would, you know, uh, do everything in my power to, you know, to, to make it more fair, more inclusive, more sane and more safe. So I would do anything for this country because it is a country that I belong to. To have your fellow citizens call you a traitor and for committing treason for number one, writing your my perspectives on paper and publishing it at a, a global publication, mind you, South China Post is a global publication. Um, and having that reaction from them was very discouraging and very disheartening. And um, and I haven't really talked about it until you and I had that interview. So, again, uh, I appreciate you for allowing me. time to talk about that because it was it was embedded in me but I haven't really shared it in that detail so um, it was a surreal experience and um, it didn't discourage me to continue writing Um, and I did sort of and it didn't discourage me to not approach Australian publications Um, and I did you know I I was uh, able to publish a few more about Asian Australian leadership, representation, et cetera. So, but during that time, I was desperate to have that article published in an Australian publication because I wanted to share that perspective with my fellow citizens. I wanted to add it, I wanted to add the nuance, I wanted to add that diversity within the Chinese Australian community because it wasn't at all seen in, in the media at the time.
2: Do you think that that diversity wasn't being seen because of the media having tunnel vision, or do you think that it was? That there were constraints and complicated dynamics going on within the Chinese Australian community itself. What are some of the kind of constraints, or are there constraints on Chinese Australians speaking about China?
1: No, very, very good point, Julie. Because um, I think it's it's two sides to the to the story. Because number one, it's very hard to find Chinese Australian. Chinese, Australian commentators or even individuals who are willing to share because of, you know, repercussions around, um, you know, their own safety or, you know, uh, afraid of actually just wanting to put themselves out there. And, you know, people have always mentioned to me about, you know, do do you fear repercussions? And and a part of me do because, you know, for example, my my wife's got family in China and, um, you know, I've got extended family in China and, um, you know, uh, Sometimes I do wonder whether what would happen if I step foot into China, if it's not, you know, just say it's pre-COVID or even when COVID didn't exist, if I step into China, what would be the repercussions? I'm not sure. I always say to myself, I don't want to be giving our diplomats a hard time in case if things do go pear-shaped. But um, but I feel that I do owe a moral, moral obligation to be that voice, uh, to be one voice, not the voice, but a voice for the Chinese-Australian community um, to provide that insight uh, to the wider Australian community and to help us, um, better understand what this bilateral relationship means. And I think, you know, you've got one side where Chinese Australians, a lot of them, are um, not willing to share and to put themselves out there. Then you've got the other side where media outlets just do not have enough knowledge or do not have enough awareness around that diversity, who to approach, who to go to. Um, but I have to say that that I've seen that improve ever since 2017. Oh, that's good. Uh, yeah, I, I've seen more um, more Chinese-Australian journalists working in media outlets. I've seen more, uh, you know, uh, cultural and linguistic analysis about issues facing our community, um, and I've seen more Chinese-Australians taking on journalism as a potential career, uh, and some of them are on this call today. So I think, you know, that is on the improve, and uh, and I think that, you know, by working together between the community and with improving uh, the knowledge and the representation of our media outlets, I believe we would be able to yeah. I- improve our reporting and analysis on, on cultural diversity moving on from here onwards.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So, uh, so there, are, there are certainly constraints. There are certainly uh, Chinese Australians who are sort of conscious that they uh, might have their loyalty questioned by putting a, a particular point of view. Um, and I think it's really important. I think it's really important for journalists to bear in mind, uh, in a country like uh, Australia, that it can be difficult to remember that uh, people who have family and friends um, back in in other countries, where where they live under kind of uh, non non democratic governments, that that people that there can be repercussions, and they can they can certainly be frightened about repercussions. For people back home, um, and about you know even even innocent details in a story can make someone uh, vulnerable to to surveillance and so on. I think that's sort of something that people people who don't have a lot of kind of experience of uh, you know repressive or authoritarian governments have to have to bear in mind. And that's,
1: and that's real. I mean, before mind. yeah, really sorry to interrupt. Is a just a thought bubble came on, and uh, you make a really good point because. Um, I do want to share this before we go to Q&A and before we go to our moderated discussion and and Q&A with our participants. And that is when it comes to um, Chinese Australians or those of the Chinese diaspora living overseas, um, those lines are really blurred because the Chinese government... uh, you know can't tell or would not tell the difference you know like if they see somebody who is of chinese appearance making commentary about china whether it's pro against nuanced balanced uh, it makes you a target it just it just sort of um it just makes you um go on their radar and, and, it, and it puts you out there and uh, and sometimes it is really concerning because they don't want to tell the difference or they can't tell the difference. Um, And then, you know, and that makes it really hard for Chinese Australians to, to speak out. And because of that mindset, a lot of them don't. And which is why, like, it's really important to talk about these things and actually highlight them when the opportunity arises.